What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. 64 was one of those Olympics that uh, I think one of the last Olympics were... You know, it was not no pro. Well, there probably were protests, but I can't. I can't remember them at the time. And that, you know, it was one for me. It was like just the fact of being at the Olympics and know what the Olympic Games are about. But it's not just about sports. It's also about life and what happens on this planet in which we live. Sixty-eight to me showed that. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to a legend, the first person to win back-to-back Olympic 100-meter golds, and she did so at the 1964 Tokyo and the historic 1968 Mexico City Olympics. She's also been a freedom fighter for five decades, a fierce advocate for women in sports, Wyoming Tyus. Also, I've got choice words about the firing at long last of Canada's favorite bigot, hockey commentator Don Cherry. The Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards, all Kaepernick-themed, but first, Wyoming Ties. So, I just wanted to start by saying I'm so excited that you're coming to New York City for two events, and I want all my listeners to know about them. You know, one at the Schomburg and one at Blue right. Stocking Books, December 5th and 6th. How does it right. feel to be coming into New York City and to have this level of excitement and appreciation for, for you and your life's work? Well, I'm very excited. And New York has always been one of my favorite places to come. And uh, I'm just, I mean, I'm overwhelmed a lot too because just the fact that I just finished comp- writing my book and I'm getting uh, so many interviews and things and it making me feel really wonderful about it. And that, you know, that people care about what's uh, going on with women and in sports and everything. Now, why did you decide, I I know I I played a role in, in doing some convincing, but obviously (laughs) you're you're the one 
at the end of the day who has to put your name on it and put you know and all the rest of it why did you finally decide after all this time to do a book and tell your story well, first of all, thank you for encouraging me and telling me I really had a story, which I didn't think I did. And that, um, the mere, well, just for me, it was all about my coach uh, at Temple. And that um, I saw what he not only did for me, but so many uh, black women and giving them an opportunity not only to compete in sports, whether they went to the Olympics or not, but also the God have an opportunity to go to college as at the time I was in school and uh, there were only about 8% of women going to college and that 8%, I'm not just talking about black women. I'm talking about women all over the U S only 8% of women that were in college. So you think about that and then you narrow it down to black women. It becomes very small, but for him, I wanted the world to know that, what he had done for women, not just, and then women in sports. And, you know, he was title nine long before title nine, as he would always say, he was title one. <laughs> he started with nothing. <laughs> he started with nothing and he gave, uh, you know, so many hundreds of women, um, opportunity to go to college, to get a college education. Also gave him opportunity to, you know, be strong. I don't, you know, as a person, as a black woman, be strong, be able to speak your mind and uh, feel good about what you do. Also, just the fact that here it is a man that grew up, we are in the South <laughs> and uh, we're talking, we're talking, women were not encouraged to do, to be part of sports and especially black women. But he made it possible for us to do so. He, he not only gave us that college education, he also gave us a bond among us as women to be there for each other, to help each other, to encourage each other, and to say to each other, you know, we're all here together and we're standing on other people's shoulders. Mm. And sh- shout out, of course, to uh, Elizabeth Terzakis for working with you on the book. want to make sure I say that. Uh, <laughs> Well, I think that the book would, I mean, you know, you encouraged it. You introduced me to Elizabeth, which was one of the wonderful things. And she has been just amazing. And especially with me and mine, I was not such a talker. <laughs> and she was able to pull all these things out that I have been, that's been inside of me for years. And uh, I'm just, uh, so grateful to her and that uh, I mean not only is she my co-writer but she's also my friend yeah I know she she certainly echoes <laughs> that sentiment every time I speak to her fierce advocate for the book I, I wanted to, to ask you about Coach Temple because he sounds like such an exceptional person given what he was advocating for and the times with which he was advocating for it uh, he must have been a lonely figure on his own landscape. What do you think inspired him to have such a principled stand for women in sports? Well, it's hard to say because, you know, he didn't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, his talk was, hey, you're here to get an education, and uh, if you get a chance to make an Olympic team, that's, that's a plus. But the biggest thing is that, you know, he, he saw a need. I, 
I'm looking as I look back at it, I just he saw a need for it. And I don't that at the at Tennessee State where we were at school, the um president at Tennessee State at the time, you know, to, said to Mr. Temple, who also went to Tennessee, graduated from Tennessee State, that, you know, he would give him a job if he touched the women's team. But he and Mr. Temple would say he told us He'd give him a job coaching women's team, but he didn't tell him, I won't give you any other things to help you do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think he made something like maybe 300 They gave him $300 and the two cars, station wagons to travel back and forth to all the track meets. So that, you know, so he just had a passion for, you know, he played football and he played in, in college and all of that. Uh, but he just had a passion for women's sports and for, for you know growing up in the south like, well he didn't grow up in south he grew up in philadelphia or pittsburgh or whatever <laughs> and, but he had a passion for it and he he saw something that nobody else saw i don't know what it is because i when i think about what did he see in me <laughs> running as a 15 year old that he thought i could be you know go to school and go to the olympics and maybe win gold medals. I just don't know how he saw that, but he just, he was a visionary and he could see it. I like, I would never have been able to see that. <laughs> yeah. True, true visionaries. I think see things that are not Im- immediately apparent in front of us so that he could be in Tennessee and say, I can imagine you in Tokyo. I can imagine you in Mexico city. I mean, that that's pretty remarkable. Yes, it is. I mean, you know, and I'm not the only one you think about. You know, he put 40 women on Olympic teams, and he won 23 medals, and 13 of those medals were gold medals. Wow. Now, I got to ask you, like, like, we talked about Coach Temple. Um, I wanted to ask you a question that I know the Schomburg was curious about as well. Um can you share with us a story of a particular struggle or a figure from your time in the world of track and field that my listeners might not be familiar with? The struggles that we had at Tennessee State was not just, you know, being, uh, not being encouraged, not, and it was not just Tennessee State. They were just not encouraging women to be in sports, and especially track, and they looked at track more as a, a male sport. And so he, Mr. Temple had to do things to make sure, you know, he always said, well, you have to be ladies first. You have to do this. And he just really encouraged us to be, be there for each other, to work hard, to make sure, you know, our number one thing was you had to have an education because his, he would say that, you know, you can, go all over the world and, you know, and if you don't have an education, you're not going to be able to do anything. He would always say that track may get you in the door, but education would keep the door open. And he always encouraged us to, when we had friends, you know, it was great to have track people that were in sports, but y'all sure should have friends from all walks of life because you never know who you're going to be involved with, who, if you, as he would say, we might be sitting next to kings and queens and presidents at one time, and you need to be able to talk more about what's going on in the world and not just about sports. Wow. And so to me, he is a person that uh, 
for me and a whole lot of other women that really made us know that, hey, we have the strength within us to do what we need to do. We just have to make sure we are, you know, we're able, we're capable, and we, I mean, being capable, you learn through going to college. And not only that, you get another type of education when you're traveling. Because I can remember my first trip uh, abroad, I just, it was mind-blowing. Matter of fact, we went to Russia, and I mean, how many times, I mean, I never thought in my life I would go any place. I never thought in my life that I would even leave the country. But to go and see other people, see other cultures, to experience a lot of that, to experience the different foods, and coming from the South and mm. <laughs> having certain types of meals served to you all the time, and then to go and here you have caviar, you have these things, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so... Uh, you get a different education. So to me, I always think uh, you get two different kinds of education, both in which will make you very strong women. Wow. You know, I, I got to ask also, I mean, you're, I know being a world-class athlete oftentimes requires wearing blinders and focusing so much on the sports. How self-aware were you and your teammates though, that you were in the South, that you were at Tennessee State, that you were in the middle of the civil <laughs> rights movement, that you were women doing these amazing things. How self-aware was the team about the kind of symbolic excellence that you were putting forward in this difficult time? I think, well, we all were, because most of the Temple's uh, young women came from the South. And I grew up in a small town in Georgia, and uh and I, like I said, I, do a, I grew up during the civil rights era. I grew up during the time that, I mean, I grew up with three older brothers, so I always was able to be a part of sports and play with them. But for as uh, playing, and we grew up on a dairy farm and in a white community, and most of the kids we played were, were white kids, where we could only play with the boys, we couldn't play with the white girls. So we were quite aware of what was going on. And also at the time we were in school, I mean, when I was a teenager and stuff, and things that were happening in the teal. And going to Tennessee, you thought a little bit that, oh, it's a little bit more than what was going on. They have a lot more going on than what was going on in Georgia, but we were still in the South. And even when we were at Tennessee State and we were going trips in those station wagons, and uh, Mr. Temple had to navigate the situation where we had to um, leave early in the morning, make sure you eat, make sure you go to the bathroom, all of these kinds of things, because certain places you couldn't stop and use the bathroom. If and if someone had to, that meant we pulled it alongside the road and you had to get out and go find your spot to go to the bathroom. So we were quite aware, and I don't let uh, Mr. Temple made us quite aware of it. And then and you can't, and you're living it, you don't, you know, it's, you're living it, you know it. It's not, it's a part of you. My family taught us that, you know, there were certain things you had to be aware of. And uh, my dad used to say all the time, you know, people don't want to be with, be bothered with you. You should not want to be bothered with them. Mm. And so, great lesson for all kids, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> truly. Um, so, what do you think? I mean, given your your experience, what do you think has changed and what stayed the same for Black women in the world of sports? Well, there's a lot has changed. The change I see, you have a lot more black women involved in sports. 
and, and sports. And we have a lot more black women involved in sports that you never thought black women would be a part of. I mean, when I was growing up, you only thought of black women being in track and field. And then I, and now you look at, we have black women in gymnastics, swimming, you name it. And, and those kinds of, those were not opportunities black women were given or even thought of doing. I mean, that was, I don't even think anybody tried to even introduce that. And if they did, it was very, you know, it was not very well known. So those kinds of things have changed. And um, the other thing, a lot of it stays the same because now that you look at uh, black women and you see the things that they're doing and a lot of times they're kind of punished for it. If you're really a person that's really good at what you do at your, and uh, people look at it and they say, well, you you know, you're, for example, Serena Williams, you know, she's, she's, when she started, you're too strong, you're, she's too this, she's that, she's, you know, and people start not liking her for those kinds of things. And you think of Simone Bias who, um, doing all these new flips in gymnastics and they're saying that she shouldn't be doing them. They, they say get better. You know, the rule is you, you want to always be better because, you know, you want to improve all the time. But now they're saying that you shouldn't because it's too dangerous for other women. I mean, what, I don't, I don't see the sense in that. So in the sense that there are, there are a lot of good things that have happened but then there are some other bad things that are not happening. And also when you look at it, there are not that many black women in endorsements or anything like that. I, you don't see it. And you have other, you know, it's just a different, I just think we need to pull back and look at where we are with women's sports. I know you look at soccer and all of that and everybody's rah, 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 but there are other parts of, especially individual sports that, uh, the women just not getting the play that they need or should have. Because when you think about it, it's about, what, 40% of uh, sports, it's about 40% of women are involved in sports, and only about um, 4% of that get media coverage. Mm. Now, the gap is, is wild. And what you talking about, yeah. you, you reminded me of that uh, French skater, black woman Soraya Bonali, who yes. was the only one who could do the flip, and so they outlawed the flip. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Instead so, of praising so her. Why is that? <laughs> yeah. Instead of praising yeah. her for the flip. And that, yeah, it, you know, you go encouraged to do things, and then when you start doing them, and you get better than everybody else, then they want to say, "Well, you can't be better than everybody." I mean, to me, it's the same thing with us in track and field. I mean, uh, Tennessee State. I mean, the Tiger Bells were. You know, you, you think about it; they won. And 1960 in the Olympics, uh, the whole relay team was from Tennessee State. And then then you come back in 64, and you have uh, myself and Edith and and then Willie White, all from Tennessee State. And uh, they, you know, it just, it was a powerhouse. And for some reason, it seems to be okay if it's a man's, if it's men that are in powerhouses. You think about you know, the Cowboys and all of that. And they all, everybody said, oh, they just want the Cowboys to win. But, then, you know, when it came to us, I can remember being at a track meet and someone saying, you know, they were wishing everybody good luck and then I'll come by. I have 
Tennessee State on my shirt, on my jersey, and they said, I'm not going to wish you good luck because you're going to win anyway. Ugh. We don't care. <laughs> you know, I just think that uh, people start looking at things quite differently, but they should. I mean, you want to see the best. And, uh, you know, I remember that when uh, my father used to tell my brothers when I would play with them that they, you know, the kids we were playing with, they didn't want to play with a girl. And my dad used to tell them, you know, you just tell, you you know that your sister is good. And not only that, she could probably, she could beat all of you, which I could, but <laughs> that uh, she, you know, she's always doing her best. And that's what you want. You want somebody on your team that's going to really you know, give their best at all times. But some, you know, when it comes to black women, I see in a lot of cases, then that's just too much. And, you know, I don't understand that whole, why people think that way. (laughs) Now, it's so interesting that we're having this conversation now in 2019, because next year to 2020, the Olympics back in Tokyo, you of course starred at the 64 Tokyo Olympics. What do you remember about those Olympics and what advice would you give uh, these young Olympians, particularly ones who have never been out of the United States? What advice do you give them as they head to Tokyo? Well, number one, enjoy yourself. That's the first thing. (laughs) And take in as much as you can, not only on the athletic in the athletic arena, but also as a culture. I mean, I, I mean, going there at 19, I was, just blown away by the whole first of all we went in we landed when we went to tokyo it was at night and uh the looking from the uh, plane and see all the lights it was mind-blowing for me and coming from small town in georgia but uh but mind-blowing but i just in awe of how beautiful it was and then to be there and then be able to, we were there for a month before we competed and to be able to see some of the culture, experience some of the culture. And to, it made, to me, that was so educational and also just a uh, warming feeling that the people in Tokyo were so nice and so gracious and all of that. And, I mean, it was something that will always be one one of the Olympics that being number one in my life. And, uh, you know, it was the first, and it was also just the whole way I felt and how the, not only the athletes, but the people in Tokyo, how they made me feel. So to athletes that are going in 2020, that they should keep that in mind and they should learn as much as they can and enjoy as much as they can and uh, know that, uh, you know, that, and there are other, especially for black women and, and also all women, that, you know, that they're standing on other people's shoulders and that uh, they have made a way for you to be here. You know, whether you're black or you're white, whatever, but they have sacrificed a lot. They have given a lot and they are not going to get what you're going to be able to reap from uh, being in the Olympics and being in this day and time. But that's never bothered. I mean, look at it. They're not asking for anything from it. It's just that they love the sport. They enjoyed the sport. And that's what they would like. Well, I would speak for myself. That's what I would like for the athletes to do, the women to do. And know that uh, they have to be uh, very strong in their conviction. They have to be very advocates for women's sports. They have to really support. Because uh, if they don't, nobody else will. 
No, that's real talk. Um, if you had to compare and contrast 64 Tokyo with 68 Mexico City, how would you do that? <laughs> I don't know if I can. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, growth had a lot to do with it. I mean, I was 19 and 64, and then I was 23 and 68. A lot had changed in the world. It was a change for uh, for the better, I think. Uh, people became more aware of what was going on in the world, not just in America. And I think most people, when they think of 68 Olympics, they think of what was going down and what uh, happened with what Tommy Smith and John Carlos did on the victory stand. But that was, it was not just in America that the unrest, it was all around the world. And a good place was Mexico City, what happened to the students there, what was happening with South Africa. And uh, so that made it quite different in 64. 64 was one of those Olympics that uh, I think one of the last Olympics where, you know, it was not no pro well that probably were protests but I can't I can't remember them at the time and that you know it was one for me it was like just the fact of being an Olympics and know what the Olympic Games are about but it's not just about sports it's also about life and what happens on this planet in which we live 68 to me showed that mm. wow that's that's powerful and 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 you talk about and you talk about 64 and, you know, the freedom of being out and about in Tokyo and, like, just the mood being so welcoming. Was, was it when you were off track and just living in Mexico City in the lead-up to those Olympics, could you feel more tension? Oh, yeah, and we were encouraged not to just go into the cities because they didn't know what would happen and all those kind of things. But, but in Tokyo, they were, you know, it was quite different. People were coming. And for me, for uh, I mean, I got a, a different chance in Tokyo because at that time they thought Edith McGuire was going to, who's my best friend, of course, <laughs> that, uh, that uh, <laughs> they thought she was going to win three gold medals in the Olympics like uh, Wilma had done. Uh, four years prior. So we had, and also our coach, Mr. Temple, was the coach of the women's track team. So we got a lot of, Edith got a lot of press, let me say, because nobody thought I was going to do anything. But, uh, but uh, so we got opportunity to go out into the city and go out into other parts of Tokyo, not just in the city, didn't see a lot of it. So that was very refreshing. It was just, you know, just a growth period for me and an understanding of other cultures and other ethnicities and becoming more aware and becoming, uh, I guess, at the time, not looking at it then, more <laughs> more into uh, what what. I need to do or what people need to do to help make this a better world. Mm. Wow, that, that's <laughs> that's real right there. And after 68, did you feel a uh, a burden or perhaps a blessing to now push forward beyond sports? Well, no, I don't, I don't think a burden, no. I feel like six, after 68, I just felt that I became... I became more of a person than knowing that I need to be more active in, in, in my activism and saying things I need to say as and knowing more. And also I would, it gave me an opportunity to uh, be more. I mean, I think this does sports does this for a lot of people, for a lot 
well, for women, I think, give them a lot more strength than they think they have. And then when they start to recognize that they are able to speak up and encourage other athletes and other people in the world, not just athletes, about and, and speak on it, I mean, and say these are the things that need to be changed. So to me, that's what to- uh, Mexico City was. I think about um, a lot of times what's happening here in America and how people, athletes and women athletes, I look at the WNBA players and women who are always there, out there and they're protesting, they're protesting, um, and nobody ever talks about them. They never get any credit for the fact that they are out there saying these things are wrong, Black Lives Matter, and we need to do more. And they, and, no, and that's, that's just not one thing. You know, they talk about everything. I think athletes, you know, we're not just athletes. You, know? <laughs> you compete, you're also a human being, and you live in this world, and you need to know about what's going on in the world. Wow, I can't think of a better note to end on than that. I, I will ask you this, though. The 60s, what was your soundtrack in the 60s? What music <laughs> were you listening to? Oh, all of it. I mean, if you think about 1968 in Mexico City, just before the 100 meters, I was doing a little dance called the Tighten Up. <laughs> and uh, and there was a song out called the Tighten Up by Archie Bell and the Drills. And I was, that was going in my head at the time because I was always said that I would do that to relax. That was relaxing myself. But, you know, I can't just, I mean, I was just a part of the 60s and all that music I enjoyed from you name it. And I loved them. <laughs> hmm. Fantastic. Hey, Wyoming Tyus, I'm so excited to see you in New York. I'm going to repeat this right now. The Schomburg Center, Center, the historic right. Schomburg Center on December 5th. Such a treat to be even just going there. And then Blue Stocking Books on December 6th. Uh, thank you so much for appearing on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. And everybody come out and uh, they can get some more from what we just talked about. I really appreciate it, Dave. Thank you Absolutely. so much. Oh, yeah, and you can pick up Tiger Bell, and maybe they can get it signed? Oh, absolutely, get a book signed, absolutely. And take a picture with me on all, all that. Right. Like, you know, that <laughs> let's oh, let's make sure we have all that happen. Absolutely. All right, thank, thank you so you, much, Jay. Ms. Tyus. Bye-bye. Be well. Bye. That was Wyoming Tyus, ladies and gents, and a legend on the Edge of Sports podcast. We'll be back right after this. Uh, with a quick word from our sponsor of the show, MyBookie.com. During Thanksgiving week, MyBookie is offering a risk-free bet on the Bears-Lions game. Simply choose a team against the spread for up to 250 bucks. If you win, congrats. You got extra holiday spending money. If you lose, congrats to you as well. MyBookie will give you all your money back. It's a no-brainer because you literally cannot lose. It's no risk, all gravy. It doesn't matter whether you're an experienced player or a first-time customer, MyBookie welcomes all to come play. So quit waiting around and sign up today. Do you find yourself wanting to sports bet but have lots of questions? Don't sweat it. MyBookie's patient customer service team can walk you through the process. And the best part is, if you join this Thanksgiving week, you'll still have one last shot to take advantage of their incredible sign-up offer. 
Just log on to mybookie.ag and make your first deposit with promo code EDGE, and mybookie will match your deposit dollar for dollar to jumpstart your bankroll, and that's on top of the risk-free bet. Let me repeat, that's a guaranteed deposit match and a risk-free bet for Thanksgiving only. So if you're a true football fan, you do not want to let this opportunity pass you by. You simply cannot lose. Make sure you do your part and support your team this season. Hop on the gravy train and get in on the action with my bookie. You play, you win, you get paid. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Okay, look, I got some choice words about the firing of Don Cherry. Look, not, not unlike racism, Don Cherry is a Canadian institution. Pugnaciously prejudiced, the 85-year-old, now former co-host of Sportsnet's Hockey Night in Canada, has been on the scene seemingly as long as hockey itself. In a 1993 Sports Illustrated profile of Cherry, Lee Mottville wrote, He knows the end will come someday, maybe soon, maybe tonight. He is pushing, pushing, pushing the limits too far, saying too much. One final piece of outrage will bubble from Don Cherry's high-volume mouth. That someday soon took 26 years. But now one of the most prominent voices of reaction and bigotry in sports is off the air. Cherry's offense was minor compared to things he had said in the past, according to hockey reporter Joshvina Shah. But after an explosive response to his most recent comments... It was the final straw. Cherry, in his Coach's Corner segment on Hockey Night in Canada, attacked immigrants who don't wear poppy pins on Remembrance Day, our northern neighbor's Veterans Day. These pins are a Canadian tradition that are meant to honor vets. Cherry said, I live in Mississauga, Ontario. Very few people wear the poppy. Downtown Toronto, forget it. Nobody wears the poppy. Now you go to the small cities, you people that come here, whatever it is, you love our way of life, you love our milk and honey. At least you can pay a couple of bucks for a poppy or something like that. These guys paid for your way of life that you enjoy in Canada. These guys paid the biggest price for that. After an intense din of online outrage and mainstream punditry, Sportsnet president Bart Yashley finally fired Cherry. As for Cherry, he refused any effort at apology, reconciliation, or even understanding. He said to the Toronto Sun, I know what I said and I meant it. Aaron Lakoff, a Montreal activist and host of Changing on the Fly, a podcast that looks at hockey through a feminist and anti-racist lens, said to me, Like millions of other Canadians, I grew up watching Don Cherry on Coach's Corner between the first and second periods on Hockey Night in Canada, and we just had to put up with his loud mouth and loud suits. For decades, Cherry has spared no one in his vitriolic rants. Women, francophones, indigenous people, and immigrants. But today, people of color and anti-racist hockey fans are breathing a sigh of relief. The Prime Minister of Saturday Night is no more. Cherry getting fired represents a huge victory for us in the digital age, when we can band together on social media and rip the platform away from one of the most bigoted men in hockey media history. My hope is that Sportsnet won't make the same mistake that brought us Don Cherry in the first place by appointing another old white man to take his place and instead seeks out a fresh voice that represents the tolerant and open society we want to build, end quote. It must be asked, however, why after all his years of nativism and xenophobia did this finally get people to push back on Cherry? Several hockey writers with whom I spoke were trying to figure out that very thing as well. Canadian sports writer Sharina Med had a sharp analysis when she messaged me. 
not because of any integrity by Sportsnet. It was because they had no choice. He went after immigrants for not supporting vets without realizing that so many vets are immigrants or come from what were from Commonwealth countries. Now, in what we can hope remains a post-cherry hockey world, Joshvina Shah says that looking forward is the most important question. She said to me, I'm really glad they did fire him, but I'm also afraid that most people disgusted by Cherry will just say, oh, it's over. But Cherry still has a platform going forward. Now is the time for people in hockey media to make sure that Cherry can't spread his hate and for everyone who considers themselves allies to stress that we need to take educating Cherry's audience that loves him more seriously. That's the only way to marginalize him. You have to educate his community. Shah and others expect Cherry, even at age 85, to re-emerge on another forum. As for Sportsnet, Shah says that firing him is simply not enough because, quote, who they choose to replace him will say a lot about their company and what they want to do going forward. She's right. Don Cherry's life work was to limit and marginalize the people who love this game. But now Sportsnet has a unique opportunity, not only with a way overdue firing that it was forced to make, but a chance to show the hockey world that this is a sport for everyone. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down for the Just Stand Up Award this week. Stand up! I want to shout out somebody we've certainly honored in the past, and that is U.S. soccer great Megan Rapino. At a recent speech, at a, I believe it was the Glamour Magazine Awards, she spoke about Colin Kaepernick, and I want to play all five minutes, I believe, roughly, of her speech because it really is something else. So let's listen to Megan Rapino. I feel like I have to take uh, this opportunity to thank the person for whom I, I don't feel like I would be here without, um, someone whose courage and bravery um, was so bright and so bold, a person filled with conviction, unafraid of the consequences because he knew it really wasn't about playing it safe, it was about doing what was necessary and backing down to exactly nobody. So while I'm enjoying all of this unprecedented and frankly a little bit uncomfortable attention um, and personal success, um, in large part due to my activism off the field, Colin Kaepernick is still effectively banned. Still banned from the NFL for kneeling during the national anthem in protest of known and systematic police brutality against people of color, known in systematic racial injustice, known in systematic white supremacy. I see no clearer example of that system being alive and well than me standing before you right now. It would be a slap in the face to Colin and to so many other faces not to acknowledge 
and for me personally to work relentlessly to dismantle that system that benefits some over the detriment of others and frankly is quite literally tearing us apart in this country. So while we all have injustices that we're facing, for me personally, a very public fight with our federation, which we're having a fight over why we don't deserve to be paid equally. Um, some people even say we do our job better. I don't know. Yeah, it's crazy. I still know in my heart of hearts and in my bones that I can do more and that we can do more. And I know that because we just have to. We must. It's like, it's imperative that we do more. My mom, who's here today, looking stunning, by the way. Shout out, mom. Impressed upon me and my twin sister at a very young age. You ain't because you're good at sports. You ain't because you're popular. You're going to be a good person. You're going to be kind and you're going to do the right thing. You're going to stand up for yourself always. You're going to stand up for each other always. And you're damn sure going to stand up for other people always. Yeah. She taught us that in kindness and in caring and in giving and sharing, that's abundance. That's the kind of culture that we want to live in. I feel like we live in this sort of scarcity type culture. One of my best friends always says that. And that's not the world I want to live in. I think we can move on from losing alone to the belief in winning together. And with that abundance in mind, I want to reimagine what it means to be successful, what it means to have influence, what it means to have power, and what that all looks like. I've gained this incredible platform in such a short period of time, but I'm not going to stand on it alone. I refuse to do that. There's going to be ladders on every side, all over the place. And I'm not going to act like it wasn't Colin Kaepernick, Tarana Burke in the Me Too movement, Colin Kohler's Garza and Tometi, Black Lives Matter, the women of Time's Up, Harvey Milk, Gloria Steinem, Audrey Lorde, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, and the injustices that so many others face that put me in this very position. And I'm not going to act like my whiteness has nothing to do with me standing before you now. I don't want to live in that kind of world. And I don't think that that kind of world is the world that suits everybody and is going to move us forward in the direction that we need to go. So we got to switch the game up. Caring is cool. Right? Like lending your platform to others is cool. Sharing your knowledge and your success and your influence and your power is cool. Giving, I didn't know the kids were going to be here, but like giving all the f***s is cool. You know? <laughs> like doing more is cool. Yes. Yes. So obviously I don't need to say that to all of the other women who are being honored tonight. Everyone is doing that. But to everyone else in this room, we have such an incredible opportunity to redefine what power and influence and success looks like. And from the looks of it, it looks like this is a room full of very powerful and influential and successful people. So share that platform. Throw your ladders down. Because it's our time. We're ready for this. And it needs to happen. 
This is such a pivotal moment for us. There's so much momentum, but we have to move forward and we have to be better. So everybody, we have to do more, okay? We're here, we're ready, everyone's ready to do more? Good. That's really it. Thank you so much for this amazing award. Sorry I took way too long, but oh well. Thank you, everyone. That was Megan Rapino, Edge of Sports fam. Really wanted you to hear that. And by the way, Megan, if you're listening, the purple hair, the rings, that was badass. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. It goes to NFL bosses, NFL executives, Roger Goodell, the NFL brass, and Jay-Z for organizing this cattle call for Colin Kaepernick, which is taking place roughly about the time that we're recording this podcast. This is really disgusting. They're bringing Colin Kaepernick down to Atlanta to basically do uh, an audition for whatever NFL teams want to show up. I believe at this count, 24 NFL teams are going to have quote-unquote representatives to see him. But it's also gutless because they're having the tryout on a Saturday when NFL coaches are, of course, preparing for Sunday's games and top scouts are scouting college games. Instead, who's going to be there? The assistant to the regional manager of the equipment room? It's kind of ridiculous. And also, the fact that they're doing it in a setting that does not allow Colin Kaepernick, after three years off from the league, to perform at his best. They're not telling him what wide receivers he's going to be able to have uh, to throw to. Uh, Colin Kaepernick is trying to now, as we speak, get his own wide receivers to come to uh, Atlanta so he can be able to throw to people with whom he at least knows their height and their speed so he can plot and plan accordingly. So why is this whole thing even happening? I believe it's happening, and my sources certainly tell me it's happening, because the rollout of the Roger Goodell-Jay-Z nexus was so disastrous and made Jay-Z look so bad when Jay-Z said, we have to move on from Colin Kaepernick, we have to move on from one person's job, we have to move on from taking a knee, move on, move on, move on. Well, guess what? The people who Jay-Z was trying to speak to, his quote-unquote constituency, does not want to move on. They want to see Colin Kaepernick get an honest shot. And so this tryout is now the result of that. I think they're setting up this tryout for Colin to fail. But all that being said, let us please remember, Colin Kaepernick deserves to be playing in the National Football League. And it just takes one damn team of conscience to step up and say, you know what? We are better with Colin Kaepernick on our roster. That's all it takes. One team to do the right thing. That's all it takes. We have to remember in sports history, it's often it just takes one team that needs to come together to do the right thing. Uh, When the Brooklyn Dodgers signed Jackie Robinson, it wasn't because Major League Baseball wanted to embrace African-American players. They actually took a vote about whether to finally break Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis' ban on black players in Major League Baseball. And in that vote, the Brooklyn Dodgers were the only team to say, yes, we want to integrate. It just took that one team to step up against the tide of opposition. Similarly, it takes just one team now to be able to say, wait a minute, we are better to have this guy in our roster. We have to remember that Colin Kaepernick isn't playing because he's bad in the locker room. He isn't playing because he doesn't have the ability to play. He isn't playing because of the prejudices of NFL owners and NFL executives. So now we get to see whether they're going to let their prejudices, and this is probably the last chance they're going to have to show and prove where they are in the moral standing of their sport and in the moral standing of their own minds. 
about whether they're going to let those prejudices stand in the way of signing Colin Kaepernick. They say they should keep politics and sports separate. Well, here's a great example of them putting politics ahead of having the best possible team. We're going to see if there's even one team who's willing to say, nah, we're not going to play this right-wing game any longer. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to our guest, Wyoming Tyus. Thank you so much to everybody out there listening. Uh, please, please go to uh, our Apple page. Go to all of our pages online where the podcast is downloaded from. Leave a rating. Uh, leave a little note that you like the show. All that stuff makes a huge difference in their various algorithms. Thank you so much to everybody out there for listening. We are out of here. Enjoy Thanksgiving. Peace. Peace.